I think it was pretty hard for me to gradually transition and, and to realize as somebody living in Silicon Valley, living in San Francisco, that the thing that people around me valued, I didn't really care about. And that building a sustainable, smaller lifestyle business would be completely fine to me. And I would just have to basically not worry if people thought it was lesser, or if I didn't make the front page of TechCrunch, or if it just wasn't on the same level in terms of the respect that it got for my peers and my friends out here. It was what I wanted to do for myself. When it comes to marketing, whether you're talking about a podcast, a business, or a product, you're often taught that competition is a sign that there's a lot of demand for your work. The first company to market can create demand, but they may not be the ones that succeed in the long run. So while you think it's a good idea to go out and podcast about something new, leaping into the unknown can actually be incredibly risky. This is your host, Bridget Lyons, and today on Podcast Ally, I'm speaking with someone who found himself an outcast in his community, and he decided to create an entire business and a podcast around bringing together an underserved community. Cortland Allen is the host of the Indie Hackers podcast, which grew out of the written interviews he was already creating for the platform IndieHackers.com. Then, as now, the concept of building a lifestyle business in tech carried a bit of a stigma. If you weren't going for those big investment dollars, you were definitely a misfit in the tech space. Cortland tried the traditional route. Before launching Indie Hackers, he had graduated from MIT, he participated in Y Combinator, and he spent six years trying to build the stereotypical high-growth Silicon Valley startup. It wasn't until Cortland decided to take another path to build something that he could put online, charge money for, and make enough money to pay his bills that he really started finding runaway success. Today, the podcast he started for other Silicon Valley outcasts has reached 6 million downloads, proving that Cortland wasn't the only one opting out of the startup grind. Cortland joined me to talk about how he went from reluctant podcaster to host of one of the most influential shows in the startup space. He gives us his number one piece of advice for improving the quality of your podcast and what's next for the Indie Hackers podcast. Let's get into this interview. Cortland, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the Indie Hackers podcast. Before we start talking specifically about the podcast that you host, I think it's important to understand the origins of the site IndieHackers.com, which you founded a year before you actually launched the podcast. So could you start us off by taking us back to the beginning and letting us know where your idea for Indie Hackers came from? Yeah. So first of all, I'm happy to be here, Bridget. Thanks for having me. The idea for Indie Hackers really started 10 years ago with my own, uh, let's say, less than fortunate foray into the startup industry. I graduated college in 2009, right at the tail end of the last recession. And I was determined to start my own sort of high growth, stereotypical Silicon Valley tech company. I loved coding. I loved all the stories I was reading about Facebook and Twitter and other startups at the time. So I moved from Boston to San Francisco and I spent basically six years starting companies, raising money, and never really succeeding, never building something that took off in the way that I wanted it to. So at the end of this, I kind of got demoralized. I decided to get some remote contracting work that allowed me to work from home. I was making good money doing that and just kind of tinkering with side projects and just rethinking the last six or seven years of my life. You know, why didn't any of these companies work out? And I decided to come up with a new goal for myself. My new goal was going to be that I just wanted to build something that I could put online, charge money for, 
and make enough money to pay my bills, to pay my rent and just be stable. And then I would figure out where to go from there. I just wanted to take it one step at a time instead of trying to hit a home run right out of the gate. And the problem was I didn't know very many people who were doing this. I had read some stories online, but quite frankly, these small stories of small time entrepreneurs building internet businesses are not what makes the front page of TechCrunch or any other tech magazine. They only, want to, they only want to write about the biggest companies, the flashiest startups, the Airbnbs and the Ubers, et cetera. So if I wanted to go down this journey, I realized I probably needed to learn from others who had, but the information wasn't out there. So I had to kind of scour the web and talk to people, email people, find whatever comment on whatever internet forum I possibly could that would inspire me. And I ended up doing that just relentlessly researching and finding all these ideas. I discovered Peter Levels, the creator of Nomad List, and his story was fascinating to me. And I discovered Josh Pickford, the creator of Bear Metrics, and his story was fascinating to me. And I was just absorbing all these stories of how these solo developers were building their own online startups. And it kind of clicked to me in a very meta sort of way that other people were doing the same thing that I was doing. They had the same goals, they had the same ambition, they had the same struggle, they couldn't find these stories in a reliable or educational way. And so I thought, you know, what if my startup basically was to create a resource for these people? What if I were to take all these stories, put them in one place, interview the founders, make sure I get the crucial information that everybody needs to get if they want to learn from these stories and put them on a website. So I did that in July of 2017. I called it ND Hackers. And within about three weeks of launching the site, I had 10 interviews. Um, we got about 100,000 page views our first day live. I got a thousand people on my mailing list within a week and it felt like I'd finally built something that worked. Wow. So you went for something that would actually maybe grow a little bit slower, but kind of took off like wildfire from the beginning. Although, I mean, maybe not when you compare it. I, I think it's so interesting. Actually, when I say maybe not when you compare it like this idea of the business that you're talking about building is more of this lifestyle business, which tends to be kind of derided um, in you know, growth circles and things totally. like that. Was that something that you were facing at the time when you started this? Had that derision already started then or was that a newer concept that's developed later? That was something that happened when I first moved to San Francisco. I remember I got into Y Combinator, which is sort of a high growth startup accelerator program run by a lot of famous founders and some famous companies that have come out of that, including Airbnb and Stripe, where I work now. And I remember talking to founders there and hearing them um, deride sort of these lifestyle businesses. Some guy sold his company, I think, for like a million dollars, which for me at the time, I was like 23. That was a life-changing amount of money. It still is a life-changing amount of money. And people were making fun of him. They're like, oh, he sold out. I can't believe he did this. He, you know, he didn't go uh, for unicorn status, et cetera. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm in this bizarro land where everybody's goals, everybody's bar for what success looks like is so high that it's just reached ridiculous proportions. But even then, I think because I was in that environment, I kept trying to do the same thing. I think as people, we just end up being sucked into whatever our culture tells us. You know, if you live in a culture where everybody has those values, you begin to adopt those values. And so I think it was pretty hard for me to gradually transition and, and to realize as somebody living in Silicon Valley, living in San Francisco, that the thing that people around me valued, I didn't really care about. And that building a sustainable, smaller lifestyle business would be completely fine to me. And I would just have to basically not worry if people thought it was lesser or if I didn't make the front page of TechCrunch or if it just wasn't on the same level in terms of the respect that it got from my peers and my friends out here. It was what I wanted to do for myself. And I think, you know, maybe I couldn't have done that earlier on when I was younger and less mature of a person. Yeah. And I think that 
the success of the site early on was that you created a home for all the misfits who wanted the same sort of thing that didn't have a place in any of the narratives coming out of Silicon Valley at the time. So. Exactly. I mean, most of the people who listen to the Indie Hackers podcast, you visit the website, are not in Silicon Valley. In fact, most of them aren't even in the United States. They're people who don't have access to capital from investors. They can't really build these high growth startups, but they still like building stuff. They still like creating websites and apps and podcasts and all sorts of things that they want to make money from. And they just didn't have a home because the only home was, was basically if you're going to follow the playbook of these other companies, which they just didn't have the resources or the opportunity to do. And so then the podcast flowed out of this. And when you said you started with interviews, those were interviews at the time that you were posting on the site itself, correct? Which exactly. you still do. Yep. Those are all interviews I conducted over email. I think I had 70 or 80 of those published to the website and I would send them out um, via our newsletter as well before I started the podcast and started doing audio interviews. And I heard an interview which you actually gave to Y Combinator where you said that you were not a big podcast listener at the time that you started your own podcast and it was just something that your users were requesting. Were you resistant to that idea of starting a podcast at the time? Did you know what you were getting yourself into? Oh yeah. I did not want to start a podcast. And to be honest, I was already kind of bored with doing the interviews on the website. So my background is in computer science. I have a degree from MIT in computer science. I love coding. I love designing things. I just love building things. And the whole idea of starting an internet business is appealing to me because you can build something, you can code something, and then it just works an infinite number of times for an infinite number of people forever. If I make a change to the Indiacus website, it's just there. I never have to make that change again. Whereas putting out content, doing new interviews, sending new emails, recording new podcast episodes every week just seemed like such an endless treadmill grind to me. It seemed like something I was never going to like, that you never finish. And even as your show becomes more and more successful, that doesn't make you more relaxed. That just means there's more pressure. You have more people to please. It's more of a big deal if you miss a week. So I was pretty resistant to it early on. And when people started asking for a podcast, which they literally started asking for from the very first week that I launched the website for Indie Hackers, I found every reason I possibly could not to do it because I didn't want to get on that treadmill. Oh my gosh. Well, how do you feel about that now? Let's see. Did you start the podcast? I'm, I had this written down. Was it in 2018 then? So you've 2017. Been, so 2017. I started Indie Hackers in like July 2016. Okay. And I started the podcast. I think our first episodes came out in February of 2017. Okay. So it's about seven, eight months after I launched the site. I finally caved and started releasing podcast episodes. How do I feel about it now? Much better. I think once you, actually, <laughs> okay. once you actually do things, I mean, I've been running the podcast now for three years. Once you actually do it, you settle into a groove. It's not that scary anymore. I no longer hate the sound of my own voice. Getting into a rhythm of publishing episodes is actually quite fun because it's an excuse to talk to interesting and smart people and really learn about the world through their eyes and learn what they know and ask them to share their story, which is something that I think more people should think about when they want to start a business or a podcast or any sort of endeavor. I think in your normal life, there's lots of things that you might theoretically want to do. You know, maybe you want to exercise more. Maybe you want to read more. Maybe you want to be richer. Maybe you want to meet famous people or, or people that you admire. But it's hard to find the motivation to do those things. Whereas if you have a job or you have like a business, then suddenly you end up doing all sorts of things that you might not have the motivation to do on your own. So for me, like I probably at any point in time in my life would have told you, Bridget, that I would love to, to talk to entrepreneurs and ask how they start their companies and really just have lots of these meetings and learn a ton about being a founder. But I didn't really put the effort into doing that until I literally had that as a responsibility for my job that I had created for myself. And suddenly, that's what I get to do every day, every week. 
do you get nervous or were you nervous at the start or do you still get nervous? I kind of want to know both, like reaching out to some of these founders who you have on your, your show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, a long progression of, I think, me gradually reaching out to bigger and, and more famous guests where there were years where I just didn't want to do it because I was nervous. I didn't want to interview them. I worried about messing it up. Um, I kind of had like the idea of a perfect episode in my mind and I would just constantly focus on the fact that like I would probably achieve something less than perfect. There'd probably be something wrong with it. I might not prepare enough. The guests and I might not jive well. They might think I'm an idiot. The audience might think I'm an idiot or ask bad questions. I think there's just a lot of pressure when you're ever, whenever you're doing anything that's on a stage, whenever you're doing anything for an audience and you know that they're going to have opinions. But again, I think also my fears were overblown. In the beginning, I was really worried about it. Um, and since then, like I've received like probably single digit number of complaints from people who didn't like an episode or didn't like a question I asked or something uh, out of many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of downloads at this point. So, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much of that of that worry was really necessary. Nowadays, I would say I still get nervous every now and then. You know, I really want an interview to go well. And as somebody who, again, has spent most of my life as a creator dealing with code, um, when you're creating something, you you get infinite do-overs. If I code something and it, it doesn't look right, it doesn't work well, I can just keep tweaking it and I don't have to release it until it's great. Whereas when you're performing, if you're you know, on stage singing or you're interviewing a guest or you're playing basketball or something, you only get one shot. It's live, basically. You record that thing and maybe you can edit a little bit, but whatever you get is generally what you get unless your guest is going to let you, you know, badger them to come back on and redo it, which frankly, most famous or successful guests aren't going to let you do. And so I think most of my nerves come from this this pressure I feel to get it right on the first try because I know that's kind of the only try I'm going to get. And interviews are complex. You never really know how things are going to go. You don't know if your line of questioning is going to really jive with this guest. And some of the best interviewers in the world have had dud interviews that just didn't go well. So um, yeah, I think the nervousness is still there. But I think also, you know, you have a few things that go poorly and you survive. And that <laughs> makes you that makes you a little bit more sturdy and a little bit more resilient. And you realize that when you put it all in perspective, it's not that bad when things don't go perfectly. Yeah, I, I think I can relate to that. I mean, I'm so new in this journey of doing the podcast and like all of those nerves. It's that like, yeah, you have this one hour with somebody. That's it. That's all you get. You just really hope that you'll get you'll get it right. And that <laughs> it's not even about you, right? It's about like, is the audience going to get this? Or like for me, I'm always yep. like, am I going to lose them? Like, are they going to understand where we're going here? Just get totally lost in the conversation that yep. weighs on me, which brings me to one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on, which is that you're one of the very few podcasts that I know that does a pre-interview process with your guests. It's also really clear to me when I hear an episode of the Indie Hackers podcast that you do a lot of research. You know your guests and their work and their writing very, very well before you have them on. So I'm just curious about the evolution of that process. Did you always do all this research up front? And when did you start doing those pre-interviews? So the evolution is that I started the podcast in part because a friend of mine recommended that I start one. And he had a podcast. His name is Jeff Meyerson. It's called Software Engineering Daily. He actually had me on his podcast back in late 2007, 2016 to talk about indie hackers. And that's how we met. And after the show, we just talked for like an hour. And he convinced me to do what everyone else was trying to convince me to do to start a podcast. And he gave me some tips. And the biggest tip that I remember him giving me was prepare. He said, for Christ's sake, prepare. So many people start podcasts. They don't know anything about their guests. And they just ask the most generic questions that anybody could ask. And I think it's disrespectful to the guests, but it also 
results in just less interesting content for listeners because the guest gets bored. They're getting these generic questions. They can tell the interviewer didn't prepare. And so they just don't put in as much effort. So I think from the get-go, I've always thought that in order to put out a good interview, you really need to know about the person you're interviewing so you can tailor your questions to what they're going to say. But beyond that, I didn't really know very much about how to do a podcast. Like you mentioned earlier, I just didn't listen to very many podcasts. And for whatever reason, I didn't feel like doing a whole bunch of research and reading books and blog posts about how others were doing it. So I just sort of blazed a trail. And I realized a few things after you know a year or so of doing the podcast. Number one, probably the most important thing for any interview episode is just the guests themselves. It doesn't matter how great your questions are. It doesn't matter how much you prepare. If you have a really good guest, they're going to be easy to interview. And if you have a really bad guest, they're going to be really hard to interview. And I realized that the best way for me to figure out if someone's going to make for a good interviewee is just to talk to them, just to get on the phone with them and talk to them and basically try out a mock interview um, before we actually do the live interview. Because oftentimes during a live interview, I'd be adjusting myself to try to figure out how do I interview this person? For example, if I talk to somebody who's extremely long-winded, well, I'm not going to get that many questions in. So I can't ask small fluff questions or conversational questions because they're going to talk for 10 minutes about that. What I need to do is ask really incisive um, sort of the big questions that everybody wants to hear the answers to because we're not going to have time for anything else. Well, it really sucks if I don't figure that out until halfway through an episode when I've already wasted a bunch of time talking about the guest's background and we haven't even gotten to like my list of real questions because every time they talk, it's, it's 15 minutes, you know? So I think the pre-interview helps me vet who should come on the show and also helps me figure out how to interview someone once they've come on the show, what they're excited about, what they'd like to talk about and where I should focus the bulk of the real interview. And that didn't really start until you know, a year, year and a half into me doing the podcast. I love that idea. And I will say, because I've been on the other side of the table, pitching guests to podcasts for gosh, six years now. And starting this show was the first time where I'd ever understood exactly what it felt like to all of a sudden find yourself with an hour to interview somebody that you haven't met before. It's tough. <laughs> and it is really tough and really nerve wracking. And, um, And like one of my early guests is just somebody that uh, a team member of mine met at the conference and connected with me with. So like very tenuous connection. And when I think about what you're doing with a pre-interview, I just think about how useful that would have been (laughs) to prepare. (laughs) It's nerve wracking. Um, So I just really like that you do that. And I think that I've always thought it was a very smart thing to do and something that not a lot of people take the time for. And I think this is a good time to establish sort of the size and the reach of your podcast, because you do have, I think, one of the more influential and prominent podcasts in the space you're in for sure. And so clearly people are (laughs) getting a lot of value out of it. Can you share some of those numbers of, you know, how many people are listening and tuning in to the podcast each week? Yeah, I would love to share. I'm, I'm glad you asked because I'm constantly trying to figure out how to grow my podcast and improve it. And I'm constantly wondering, you know, who should I be taking advice from? Who should I listen to? And generally, you want to listen to people who are just a few steps ahead of you or one step ahead of you, which is really hard to do in the podcasting world because nobody shares their numbers. You have no idea how many downloads anyone's getting, um, what they know, what they don't know, et cetera. So I'm happy to share my numbers. I'm looking at my stats right now. So the first episode was released... Thursday, February 16th of 2017. So about three years and two months ago. Since then, we've had 6.1 million total downloads, which comes out to I think we had like 158 episodes or something. So about 40,000 downloads per episode. Do you have any idea of like how much 
like, were there any big moments of growth for the show? I've heard some people talking about, the reason I asked this is people have been talking to me lately about the fact that like, there's this idea that the number of people you have in your first batch is kind of what you get stuck with forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I heard a lot of people saying like, what you launch with is what you have. And I'm wondering if that was your experience or if you've had like big growth moments throughout. I mean, when I look at my graph, it's, it's basically just a very linear progression. So for like the first few months, if I look all the way up to, um, let's say like September of that year, so seven months after I started the podcast, sort of average days, it was getting around 2,000 downloads. And the first few months, it was getting around five or 600 downloads a day. By the next year in 2018, it was getting around four or 5,000 downloads a day. You know, the peak, it's getting around like six or 7,000 downloads a day. So it's constantly been going up. I don't think I've ever been sort of stuck with the initial audience. But there are times where it goes down. My graph is not only going up. And I can see the little spikes where I release new episodes. And the times where it goes down are the periods where there aren't spikes. The periods where I got lazy or distracted or I took a break uh, and I had weeks go by without a new episode. That almost always resets the downloads to some period like months before. And then whenever I'm consistently releasing new episodes and there isn't a break, I see the downloads going up consistently over time. So it seems like people make a habit and they really expect you to show up every day. And if you're not, at least with my particular show, they stop listening. And you have to sort of rebuild that trust, rebuild um, that faith they have in you that when they open their podcast app, you know, on their drive to work or when they're making dinner on Friday night or whatever, they listen to your podcast, they got to see that new episode there. One of the things I'm really interested is in the relationship between the podcaster, so you and the audience, and how much you're driving the ship versus being influenced by either these metrics or in your case, I mean, you have the forums to go back to, you know, where you're getting a lot of, I think, feedback and input from your audience. So do you have any, anything you can share about that interplay between like what kind of content you do, what kind of guests you have on, what kind of questions you do, like how much is that coming from that curiosity that you brought to this whole project to begin with and how much has been influenced by any kind of feedback or metrics that your audience are giving you? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because it's very frustrating to me as a podcaster how hard it is to connect to your audience. I think some people are probably better at this than others, but I've tried. I've put blurbs at the end of my shows asking people to tweet me, I have a podcast newsletter now where I'll send out my thoughts on each episode and ask people to reply. Um, As you mentioned, IndieHackers.com has a forum. And it's crazy to see download numbers in the millions, but the number of people who reach out to me with questions or comments or feedback about the podcast is probably under, you know, one or 200 in the last few years. It's just a drop in the bucket, which makes it very hard, I think, for me to make decisions based on feedback that people give because anything somebody says to me, you know, I think about, okay, well, like, what's the sample size? How many people have said this? And it's so small that I can't really extrapolate and say, this is something that, you know, a lot of podcast listeners want. I can only say, well, this is something, you know, that this guy told me one time at this conference. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of it ends up just being driven by my own personal taste and desire for where I want to see the show go. I think most listeners are very passive listeners. They don't have a way to interact with you as the podcaster through the app they're listening on. And they don't necessarily want to, you know, log onto the computer and send you an email while they're listening to the podcast. They might be in their car driving to work. You know, they might be cleaning up their apartment or walking down the street. So it's very hard to get active feedback from listeners. So it's something I kind of aggressively do when I go to Indie Hackers meetups or I talk to people, I ask them what they think about the show. And I've had like a few changes that I've made based on just what people are saying. 
But it, it, again, it's just all over the place. Some people will say, hey, I really want to hear more from like these super early stage guests because I relate to them. And some people will say, you know, I just don't care so much about the smaller uh, founders. I really want to hear from like people who've started big, substantial companies because those stories are just more interesting. And what do I do with that, Bridget? You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's contradictory information. I've tried lots of things. I've tried alternating between super early stage guests and late stage guests. I've tried uh, having almost many series with the End the Indie Hackers podcast. And it's also hard to see those changes reflected in the download numbers, quite frankly, because they just change so slowly over time. So ultimately, I, I think, you know, my approach is basically to do what I think is right for the show. I think you need to be interested in your own show if you want other people to find it interesting. So that's kind of always my North Star. What do I find interesting? And then more recently, I've been trying to be a little bit more strategic with kind of the content that goes on the show. So, you know, if you think about why people listen to any show or read any sort of magazine or website or social media website, they're usually doing it to solve some sort of problem. Maybe their problem is they're exhausted or bored at work and they just want a quick distraction. Maybe their problem is they're trying to start a company or a podcast and they need some strategic tips or they want some motivation because they're feeling a little bit alone. Uh, whatever the problem is, you can really model it and ask, well, how frequently do people have this problem? And what are some other ways that people are solving this problem? And how many people have this problem? Et cetera, et cetera. There's probably 10 or 15 questions you can ask about that. And with podcasting in general, I think, you know, my goal is always to grow the podcast and make it better. I think the bigger the podcast is, the better the guests that I can get, the more influential it'll be, the more meaningful it'll be to me, the more fun I'll have. So I think about growth and I think a lot of it comes down to how long do people listen to the podcast in terms of months that they listen? Will they listen for two or three months and then say, this is great. I've got everything I need to know. I'm off to the races. Or is it kind of a permanent fixture in their life that they'll listen to you forever in the same way that I'm probably going to read the New York Times forever? You know, there's not going to be a point in which I graduate from the New York Times. And so I think, you know, as a result of thinking about that a lot recently, I want to do a little bit more current events, a little bit more news in the podcast, a little bit more mm -hmm. discussion of what's relevant in the modern day, because people always uh, want to solve that problem of figuring out what's going on in the world around them and have that be mixed in with some of the more educational evergreen episodes. But I'm not quite convinced that anyone wants to listen to, you know, 500 episodes of founders telling their story from beginning to end after 30 <laughs> or 40, you probably get the idea and you've heard enough. <laughs> Yeah, that is such an interesting question because I've been reflecting on, so when I started this project, I did like a little bit of an analysis. So this is the kind of person that I am yeah. of the podcasts that I really love. And some of them are very current events. Like my two favorite podcasts are um, that I listen to kind of in my personal life. So not as much in my, I have a lot of favorite podcasts like that are personal versus professional, but in my personal life, it's a political show. That's like a panel and it's weekly and it's very topical around the current events. And then mm -hmm. the other one is um, kind of like a comedy self-help podcast called by the book. So the two hosts, they have seasons, they listen or read and live by a self-help book for two weeks and then have, it's almost like a live journal and an analysis oh, cool. of your experience. It is amazing. It's so good. I actually discovered it because one of the hosts was at a podcast conference that I went to and I heard her talk and I was like, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. And then I literally started binge listening. The first episodes I listened to were, so I'm not going to name them. They live by some books that I don't like. So it was mm. kind of coming from this, like, I wonder what they have to say about these books I really dislike. And then I like those episodes so much that I literally swapped the order and listened to the very first episode to the very most recent one. I think they have six seasons and I'm completely caught up now and I'm devastated wow. by it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's such a creative idea for a show. 
Yeah. But it's like one of them is very topical and timely and the other one is more timeless, you know, but they do talk about what's happening in their lives in the moment. So I think that's something that a lot of podcasters are grappling with. And then you have this issue where if somebody does like your show, then are they going to go listen to the back catalog and how relevant are those episodes going to be? Like the political one, I can only, if I fall behind, I'm only going to go about two weeks back because if I go any further, it's old news. It's such Not a, relevant. I think it's a really interesting tension that you have to yep. come up with because they live on these platforms. <laughs> yeah. I was just talking to um, a friend of mine about, about growth specifically with podcast, but it's the same with anything really. There's uh, there's acquisition, there's getting new users to your app, new listeners to your show. And then there's retention, which is keeping your existing users and listeners coming back. And I think for most people starting new things, you focus on acquisition. You don't have any listeners, so you need to get some listeners in the door. Like that's step number one. But once you figure that out, for example, if you produce a show that people really like listening to and they're sharing it with their friends, uh, or you're going on other podcasts and talking about it, you're getting listeners that way or ever getting listeners, you need to start focusing on retention a little bit because ultimately if people don't keep coming back and listening, then your numbers aren't going to grow and you're not going to get the kind of audience that you want. So it depends on your goals. I mean, obviously, if you don't care that much about numbers, it doesn't matter. But if you do, and I think this is sort of the point the Andy Hackers podcast is at, I really need to think about what keeps people coming back. Why do they want to listen to that 150th episode? Will they listen to the back catalog or not? Is that important to me, et cetera? So I think these are really interesting questions to ask. And it's, you know, listening to the two shows you described, one of them seems a lot more entertainment-based. One of them seems a lot more news-based. I would guess that, you know, if we were to come back three or four years from now, you'd probably still be listening to the news show. And you might be listening to the By the Book show, but I'm not sure, right? You might have some other thing that's replaced it for, for entertainment purposes. It's hard to say. It's an interesting comment. I'm going to put a pin on that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll, I'll, check with, I'll check in with you in a few years. <laughs> like boomerang that four years later. <laughs> uh, I know this. In a few years, even if you're not listening to the news podcast, yeah. you will be getting your news from somewhere. Right. You're never going to get to a point in your life where you stop getting the news. But right. there is a point in your life where... You know, like nobody takes calculus 15 times. <laughs> Eventually you've learned what you need to know about calculus and you graduate and you move on to other things. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, one of the things I've also been interested with you is how important has the podcast become for indie hackers, the company as a whole? So, and one thing we haven't even touched on is that like right after you launched the podcast, you got acquired by Stripe or you got the emails from Stripe saying they were interested in acquiring you. And so there's a sense of like with a lifestyle business, that aspiration you had, there's not an end game in the same way there is with these rapid growth companies where you're looking for an exit. And so I guess like it's all mixed up to me where I'm like, okay, so what's Mm -hmm. kind of the goal here? Is it the same as it was when you started to have this company that is this amazing resource and is kind of sustaining you have those goals changed? And then how does the podcast fit in? So that is a massive question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think your goals are always changing and shifting over time and that's, that's healthy. It keeps you interested in what you're doing and it's also a sign of progress. And my goals in the beginning, honestly, they were super selfish. And I tell people who, who I meet at Andy Hackers Meetups and on the forum, like it's okay to have a selfish goal, at least in the beginning as a business owner. My goal was I just wanted to sustain my lifestyle. Like that's it. I didn't want to have to get a job. I wanted to find something that I would enjoy working on that I could tell my friends and family about and be proud of, but that more importantly than anything, paid my bills so that I could survive and live the life I wanted to live. And I got there literally in the exact same month that Stripe reached out and acquired Andy Hackers. So in April of 2000. 17, I basically hit the point where I was making about $8,000 a month in revenue. 
and this is from podcast ads and ads in our newsletter on our website, just sponsorships. And that was what I needed to pay rent and, and food and all my bills in San Francisco uh, before taxes. So I was super happy to get there. And my plan was once I get there, I'm going to rethink the purpose. You know, how do I, how do I change any hackers to make it more impactful for others, more impactful for myself? Uh, but first, I need to be able to pay the bills. I never really had that phase because Indie Hackers was bought by Stripe. But I think with that came another change in our goals. So Stripe is an online payments company. Generally, if you're paying for something online from some sort of you know, app or, or startup, there's a very high percentage chance that they use Stripe to collect their payments. Yeah. I mean, we use Stripe at my company. <laughs> exactly. And before not Stripe, an ad, but you know. Yeah, yeah, not an ad, but like Stripe's awesome. You should use it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Stripe is huge. They're... They dwarf indie hackers in terms of like the impact they've had on the global economy and, and people who recognize them. Uh, indie hackers is just a drop in the bucket when Stripe bought it. But the founders are very visionary guys. And, you know, for them, they really wanted to see what indie hackers could become. They thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And in a lot of ways, they saw potential in it that I didn't see myself. I was, you know, mm-hmm. in the dirt every day on my hands and knees trying to figure out where my next sponsor is going to come from and trying to clear my email inbox and trying to fix bugs on the site. So after I joined Stripe, I think I took on like a much more visionary sort of aspirational approach to indie hackers where I, I really wanted to be the hub for all of these people. I really want it to be a place where these people can come to feel supported by their peers and where they can come to actually learn how to build a successful business. And I wanted to have a measurable impact on literally a planetary scale. Like I want a huge percentage of businesses that get started online to say that they got started because they read an Andy Hackers interview. That's what inspired them. That's what motivated them. And I've been fortunate enough to recently on the podcast start interviewing like many guests who, who yeah. Hadn't started a company before any hackers existed and said, oh, yeah, my start was because I read about this thing, uh, because I read this interview, et cetera. So that's kind of what drives me. And I think the podcast plays a crucial role because it's the most human part of indie hackers. If you go to the website, you read the forum. Yeah, it's all helpful and it's great, but you're not talking to people. You're not hearing stories. And I think a, a lot of the motivation, a lot of the fuel that, that drives indie hackers and that drives people is just inspiration. And it sounds cheesy and corny but I've become a fully fledged believer that that inspiration is just so underrated. People hear a story from somebody that's similar to them, somebody that maybe grew up in similar circumstances or has the same skill set of them as them. And they hear this person doing something amazing. And that serves as a catalyst for them to try doing something amazing in their own life. And I've told so many of my guests that they have literally changed people's lives just by getting on and talking about their own life. People are making life-changing decisions. They're quitting their jobs. They're starting companies. They're moving to different countries because of stories they've heard from other people. So I think the, the podcast has really become the backbone of Andy Ackers' mission and what it stands for. Yeah. I mean, when I graduated and entered the workforce, it was just before the big blogging, the early life kind of lifestyle blogging boom. And it was the precursor of what's happening with podcasting now. And I really vividly remember sitting in my PR agency cubicle, like out of the corner of my eye reading like lifestyle blogs, like design sponge and decorate and apartment therapy. And I thought like, I'm going to go out and (laughs) have my own business. like And that is a big part of my story. I mean, it took me a long time to kind of work my way out of the agency world and found my own, but it was those stories were what literally kept me going through deciding what skills I was going to build, um, saving money, going home from my grueling agency job and blogging every night, which is like, I literally launched my company with an audience because I was doing that. But I would like be there at night crying, like, I have to write a blog post and I've been working all day. (laughs) And 
And like you talked to podcasters and it's a lot like that too. When podcasts start as a side hustle, you know, when people are thinking about where they're getting their inspiration and it can be everything from like, like my husband and I bought like a little camper that, um, so we're recording this in the middle of the pandemic. So it's been put on hold, but we bought a little camper to like go travel the country in, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's podcasts like the RV entrepreneur, um, or there's podcasts like yours. And they really, I think help people keep going when they want to make this transition and see that these alternate ways of living and, and creating a path are possible. I think it's really important. Totally. And it just goes back to what I was saying earlier that no matter what you create, it's usually solving some sort of problem for people, oftentimes multiple problems. One of them might just be the motivation to keep going. Like people tell me that all the time. Oh, I like the Indie Actors podcast because my startup is hard right now and I need to hear some stories of others who are struggling through it. And like that helps me keep going. Sometimes it's education, sometimes it's entertainment, sometimes it's news, sometimes it's all of those. It's a rare case that I find somebody who's doing something creative and doing something inspirational who wasn't inspired by a story they heard or a bunch of stories they read about or others who kept them going in the very beginning. I know that we're coming to our end of our time. I, I have a <laughs> sort of off the wall question, but I'm curious, are you, are you still coding? You've talked about how much you love <laughs> coding and putting products out there. Do you still code on the site? Yeah, I just pitched a fix to the site this morning, actually. <laughs> so I code uh, <laughs> a little bit almost every day. I have, I have stretches. There'll be like a week or two where I just focus more on the content. Like right now, since I'm changing up the podcast, I'm going to spend a lot of my time focusing on the podcast, a new process for bringing in guests. You know, doing interviews is cool because I could record a bunch of interviews well in advance. Doing more topical episodes is harder because you kind of have to talk about things that are recent, which means you have to record episodes right before they come out. So you can't build up like a months long backlog. So I'm trying to figure figure out how to do that without driving myself crazy. Uh, but yeah, I still code. I still write newsletters by hand for indie hackers. I still record the podcast. I still do some editing work for the podcast too. I do a little bit of everything. How many hours a week are you spending on the podcast from the production to doing the interviews, like all of it? It's probably about five or six hours an episode. If I think about coming up with an idea for an episode, reaching out to the guest, preparing questions, researching them, pre-interviewing them, eventually interviewing them, uh, editing it, editorializing it, publishing it. Probably it's almost a full work day for each episode, but spread out over a number of days. So do you do all of that? Do you do all the editing and then writing? Because I know you do the emails that go along with the podcast. You do everything. I have, I have some help. So okay. the first three episodes of the Indie Actors podcast are probably the ones that sound the worst because I edited those 100% myself. <laughs> uh, there's this guy, Bradley. He was an indie hacker at the time who kept emailing me. He was like a, a teenager from like the middle of the country. And he just kept saying, hey, you know, do you need an editor? I love to edit the podcast. I love what you're doing. And I was like, no, I want to learn how to do it myself. And then after I released three or four episodes, he just sent me, I think his fourth email to me was two audio clips. And one of them was my podcast as I had edited it. And the other one was his version. And his sounded so much better that I immediately hired him. And he has been editing the show ever since then. So what he does is basically kind of the sound quality. He'll make our voices sound better, a little bit more bassy and deep. He'll splice in the music and he'll do some of the more trivial, like cutting out awkward silences and then cutting out extra space between you know answers and, and breaks and stuff. Whereas I'll still do one editing pass before that. And I, I see myself as more of like the editorial sort of the voice, right? I know kind of what I want the episode to sound like, what I want people to get out of it. We were talking a little bit before the show. and You said some of the episodes are super complex and they're super uh, detail oriented. So it's like kind of my job to figure out, okay, well, what's too complex? You know, what should be cut out? What should make it end? So I do a pass like that myself. And that can easily take, you know, a couple hours for an hour long episode before I pass it off to Bradley to do more of the sound quality stuff. 
did you have to, I always wonder about this because I know a lot of people who don't ever listen to their podcast interviews, both from a guest side, like I have clients who will go guest on a podcast and they like won't listen to their interviews. <laughs> and we always do that for them because they just, no one wants to hear their own voice. No. But when you do listen to it, there's, there's so much value and there's so much you can get. But did you have to force yourself in the beginning to sit down and, and do that? I guess not if you were the only one editing, it was inevitable that you were going to have yeah, to. Yeah, I, I had to. Thing. I didn't have a choice. And I think because I was so worried about how I sounded and how I came off, it was actually the opposite. It wasn't that I had to force myself to edit. It was that I had to, I've had to try to pull myself away from editing because I'll record something and be like, man, I sounded really stupid there. Let me delete this part, et cetera. I just, just obsess over it. And that, like, that way lies madness. You can spend five or six hours editing an hour-long episode if you go super deep into the depths of trying to make yourself sound great, which I did in the beginning. So yeah, I felt the same way that others did, but it was the opposite result for me. That meant that I had to read. I had to go back and listen. I had to go back and edit my episodes. Well, I am going to be really curious to hear how the podcast evolves as you go into more topical content. We may have to do this again when you've had a little experience. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Hopefully I don't don't mess it all up. Well, it's just such a different kind of production process. Like you said, you can't batch episodes ahead, you know, too much and it's got to be right on time and it's a whole extra layer of complication. So I wish you so much luck with the process. Um, Is there, as we wrap up, any sort of closing advice that you would give to another podcaster who is working on their show, working on their content, anything that you think has really helped you as you've learned through your own show? Yeah, I would say, you know, the most important thing is not to quit. It's very easy to quit. The vast majority of people I've ever met who told me they're starting a podcast stopped doing their podcast after the first season, the first few episodes, because it's a lot of work. And my biggest tip for not quitting is number one, like admit to yourself up front that it's going to be hard. It's going to be a slog. You're going to be putting a lot of time and effort into episodes that very few people are going to listen to in the beginning. But consistency is the key. And if at all possible, start a podcast that you're really genuinely interested in. I think listeners can tell when you're not interested and they won't be interested if you're not. And also, uh, if you're not interested, you're just going to quit. You're going to get bored. It's not going to be worth it a few weeks into it. So, so that's my advice. You know, do something that you love and stick with it even though it's hard. Yeah, it is shocking once you get into it, the amount of work that can go into <laughs> even the simplest it's a lot podcast. of work concept. Um, So I think that's really, really good advice. Well, thank you so much, Cortland, for joining me and everyone listening. I hope that you will check out the Indie Hackers podcast. You can find that at IndieHackers.com for a slash podcast, or of course, um, subscribe and download the episodes wherever you like to get your podcasts. So I do recommend that you go listen to that and get some context for this. You'll be able to hear all the research and the work that Cortland puts into his show. And Um, there is a topic there, whether you're an indie hacker or not, I think that you'll learn from. I regularly get like amazing flashes of insight. So thank you so much, Cortland. Thank you, Bridget. That's a wrap on my conversation with Cortland Allen. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. When I knew I was launching this podcast, he was on my short list of people I absolutely wanted to be able to speak with because I have worked with Cortland on the other side of things where I pitched a guest to his podcast and I got to see exactly what his production process was like from the other side. Speaking of which, Cortland very generously agreed to join me for a How to Pitch mini-sode. You got it in your feed. That means that right now there is a bonus episode with Cortland on how to pitch the Indie Hackers podcast. 
If you are someone who has turned your side project or your idea into a profitable online business and being profiled in the Indie Hackers podcast is a dream of yours, you cannot miss this mini-sode. Cortland joined me to talk about what he looks for when he gets a guest pitch, what his biggest pet peeves are, and he gives some amazing advice. So this is definitely a can't-miss conversation if being on his podcast is a dream of yours. Finally, before you go, if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider leaving us a review. Reviews mean the world to a new podcast because they really influence how much we're shown to other listeners. So if you want to help us out and support us in creating more content like this, doing more interviews, that would be the number one thing you can do to help. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll be back with a new interview next week.